This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, Mike Peppers drops by to educate us on what's new for SAN in ONTAP 9.7, including the all-SAN array. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio with me today on the phone, uh, Mike Peppers. Hi. Hi, Justin. How are you? Doing great. So, Mike, uh, who are you in terms of what you do here at NetApp? Uh, I am a senior technical marketing engineer, uh, and the areas that I cover are things block. So that would be SAN, uh, FlexArray, FLI, NVMe, uh, some QoS, and I am a backup for Max Data. So Excellent. I think that's, the, that's pretty much the current portfolio. Yeah, that's, that's about everything I can think of, um, other than like bricks. You don't build, you don't build buildings or anything, right? Uh, yeah. Maybe with the next release. My kid plays with blocks. Maybe he can work. Maybe he can do your job. I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe some Legos. Yeah. So, uh, Mike, uh, if we wanted to reach you, how do we do that? I am on Twitter. I'm NTAPFLI guy, or you can reach me, uh, email mpeppers at netapp.com. All right. So, uh, since Mike is our block guy, today is the, the goal is to cover all the new ONTAP 9.7 SAN updates. So, Mike, what's new in ONTAP 9.7 for SAN? Uh, there is one very big thing, uh, ASA. I'm going to put that, uh, stick a pin in that for a second. That's the all SAN array and talk about the other thing is, is, is there a couple of enhancements, uh, with regard to NVMe, uh, nine, seven will have a POC version of Rocky. That is RDMA over converged ethernet. Uh, POC version means that it is a, not a feature complete version. Uh, that will happen in an upcoming version of ONTAP. However, it is complete enough that you could connect to it uh, and start kicking tires if you wanted to do so. So that is uh, new and fairly exciting. In addition to that, uh, in NVMe, uh, uh, Red Hat just announced uh, RHEL 8.1, which includes ANA support. And so you now can use RHEL with storage failover with NVMe FC. And so that's pretty exciting to us as well. But really the, the, the big thing is the all SAN array, which is an entirely new, uh, it, it is a version of ONTAP, looks a lot like ONTAP. However, it is specifically designed to go after tier one uh, SAN uh, business. Uh, tier one SAN is, is basically mission critical SAN that must have access to data 100% of the time. Uh, so typically, who plays in that market has been uh, primarily frame-style arrays. Uh, things like the VMAX or PowerMax or VSP would be fairly common uh, in that space. However, we're also seeing a little bit of, we're also seeing arrays from a few other vendors, and we wanted to jump into that as well with the all-SAN array. Uh, the way we're doing that is this is that with the all SAN array or ASA for short, what we're doing is this is changing how we're advertising pads to data. In the past, or and in fact currently with a unified on tap, 
so that is unified protocol. So everything from NFS to SMB to fiber channel and iSCSI, et cetera, all uh, you know, in the same cluster. In that case, the way we advertise SAN paths is this, this is that we advertise the paths that go directly to the controller that host whatever uh, the, the line is you're going after. Uh, those are called direct paths and are going to be advertised as active optimized. The other paths that are indirect that go through the partner controller, for instance, and then through the cluster interconnect or through the uh, HA interconnect, those are going to be indirect paths and would be advertised as active non-optimized, or le- which essentially is just telling the host MPIO stack that this is a not preferred path. The host can still use it. Notice the word active. However, generally, they are not going to use it unless and until there are no active optimized paths left. At the point there are no active optimized paths, the host will attempt to use any active non-optimized paths. And if they are not able to use any of those either, they will say that basically all paths are down and will query to see if they can find any other uh, paths to the target lens that they are trying to write IO to. And so that is the effective change that you're getting with uh, ASA. By doing that, by advertising all paths as active optimized, in other words, they're all equally preferred, what we've done is this has shifted the paradigm from being active-active but asymmetric. That is to say that paths, there are some paths that are better or more preferred than others to active-active and symmetric. In other words, every path is equally weighted and all of them will get you to your target. But by making that change, what we've done is this is guaranteed that at any point in time and regardless of the state of the HA pair that we're specifically talking about, you will have access to your data because there will always be active paths that are available for you to run IO down. That is the essential change that's made. And the result of doing that is this is is that the amount of disruption that a host is likely to see in the event that you have a storage failover, which may be you're upgrading ONTAP, for instance, and doing the, you know, at the after uh, installing ONTAP on both controllers, you then would do a takeover so that you can reboot controller A. Once that takeover is complete, you do a give back and then do it in the opposite direction. The, the net result of that is, is you've rebooted both controllers so that they're now running the new version of ONTAP. And you've done that in a minimally disruptive fashion. As to say, one controller took over the other and vice versa. So you had access to your data. However, there is a disruption window. There is a period of time that there is going to be minimal access or no access to data while you're essentially transitioning from one controller to another. Uh, with ASA, what we've done is this is reduced that so that it is down to uh, just barely perceptible. And so that essentially is the benefit that you're seeing by going to ASA, and that will allow us to compete in markets that, uh, frankly, we have uh, not penetrated to the degree we would like to. So as far as the failover being uh, minimally perceptible, like, can you give me an idea of what an application would see in that, in that situation? So the, the beauty of it is, is, is because I'm presenting active paths, 
So let's assume that node A has been taken over by node B. What's happening in the background is this is you're actually transferring ownership of the underlying storage that node A normally would host to node B. That transition is, you know, it's quite fast, but it is, you know, it's not instant. And so during that period of time, we will continue to accept I.O. because we have active paths that we can accept I.O. down. However, those paths will be fenced for the period of time that you're actually transitioning storage from node A to node B. As soon as that transition completes, uh, which is typically uh, in a very short amount of time, you will then unfence and you will start pushing uh, data uh, back down those paths and operating normally again. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Um, as far as uh, the ASA goes, I mean, a lot of people would ask, why do I need a separate line item for uh, Tier 1 SAN? Like, why would I want to buy this in addition to anything else in the portfolio? And why are we selling it as a separate thing? So the reason why we're doing that is this, this is that we've been looking at uh, Tier 1 markets for some time and have been attempting to compete in them. And pretty much if you look at... Uh, the requirements for the applications in those spaces, we've generally been able to meet those. However, we essentially are not able to clear the check mark that we are symmetric, active-active, and that when there is a storage failover, it is minimally disruptive or almost non-disruptive. And so as a result, uh, there have been deals that we simply have not been able to participate in because we were not able to clear that check mark, essentially. That's what ASA is going to bring to the picture is, is it's going to allow you to compete in those spaces. Uh, one of the things that we did is, 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 is that we went out and talked to uh, customers who bought from us as well as others who bought from uh, competitors to ask, you know, what worked, what didn't work, what are you looking for, uh, you know, what was uh, considered to be a, a problem as far as you were concerned, or, or what are your preferences, perhaps. And one of the things that we got back uh, quite a bit of is this is, is that if you're running Tier 1 SAN, you frequently want to uh, segregate that from other storage that you might have for possibly non-Tier 1 SAN or possibly uh, uh, NAS. And so they wanted a differentiated product that did not include uh, any uh, NAS uh, protocols or features was strictly SAN and allowed you to essentially segment your tier one SAN from other things that you you know might be using storage for. And so we listened and created a product that would do exactly that, which kind of leads me to my next thing, which is defining what ASA actually is. ASA at this point, this is at introduction, is limited to a single HA pair, can be either an A700 or an A220. Uh, at a in the near future, we will add a 400 to that as well. Um, you cannot uh, connect ASAs together so that you have uh, an HA pair connected to another HA pair that are both ASA, nor can you connect an ASA to a unified cluster. Um, so those are some limits. Uh, in addition, ASAs do not have uh, any NAS protocols. So there is no NFS, there are, there's no SIFs or SMB. There are also no features associated with uh, NFS and SMB. There, the, the reason for that is actually twofold. One is this is because uh, we uh, wanted to deliver what our customers said their preference was, which is just to be able to segregate SAN and NAS from one another. 
but in addition to that, one of the things that we saw is, is, is that by uh, being able to guarantee that there are no NAS protocols, there are certain pieces or certain areas uh, uh, that we simply don't need to look at when we are doing a storage transition from one uh, controller to another. If we know that there's no SIS or NFS, we don't need to look for certain uh, in certain areas for uh, metadata when we're actually doing uh, takeover or give back processing. That speeds that along. Uh, you know, it's a relatively you know it's a, a incremental change, but we're we're fairly greedy with that, and so you can see that. Over the five years I've been TME, we've reduced, uh, you know, takeover windows from 120 seconds down to 30 to 15. We're now down in the uh, two or three or four second uh, range for IO to resume. And so you can see we've been pushing that envelope for some time. And this is another incremental uh, reduction that we were able to to pull as a benefit of not having any NAS protocols. And so that's the other benefit of doing that. Um, a couple of additional limits that ASA has is, 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 is that ASA uh, node cannot have any more than 200 volumes or 4,000 LUNs. And so for an HA pair, that'd be 400 volumes and 8,000 LUNs total. Uh, regarding those limits, the volumes and LUNs, uh, the, the limiting to a single HA pair, uh, as well as the array versions that are supported, I would expect with future releases uh, uh, on tap, we will have further enhancements to uh, ASA, which will include things like uh, probably uh, larger clusters, perhaps a four-node or a six-node cluster, for instance, uh, possibly uh, higher uh, limits. Uh, as well as additional uh, array types. Uh, so uh, I would expect that as we introduce new uh, AFFs, uh, some of those may also get added to ASA, for instance. So you mentioned that customers are interested in separating SAN and NAS from each other. You know, and you mentioned failover as being one of those reasons. Are there other reasons why customers are doing that? You know, honestly, it, it, I think that this is almost a philosophical thing, but I suspect if you look at the customers that we're asking, these are people that currently are running Tier 1 SAN, and they are currently running Tier 1 SAN mostly on EMC or HDS. There's a few other arrays, some 3PAR perhaps, but by and large, it is those three. Well, something that all three of those have in common is this is none of them support any NAS. And so it might be that the reason that they prefer to do it that way is, is that they were not given enough. There was no other option until uh, they started looking at ONTAP because we're unified. But there's not a ton of other unified, and there is no Tier 1 unified other than us you know, on the market. And so it's because you can't or because you didn't want to. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had yeah. these discussions with people before too. You know, they're at they ask, should I separate my SAM workloads from my NAS workloads? Should I separate them into different SVMs? And I'm always like, it really doesn't matter, right? But um, I was always wondering if there's a technical reason why it might matter. And it sounds like there really isn't one. I don't think that there's a particularly strong one. I you know we get back um, a, a little bit of improved. Uh, takeover or give back times 
by not having NAS protocols and therefore not having to look at any waffle replays that was, you know, looking for metadata that would be associated with either NAS or, uh, or you know, NAS protocols. But, you know, that's fairly minor. I would say that really the biggest thing is, is, is honestly, it's preference. Would I recommend that you have separate SVMs? Uh, probably, but not because there's any problem with uh, having SIFs and Fiber Channel, uh, you know, in the same SVM, but rather because it may make it easier for you to administer, especially if the people doing the administering are different teams. And so that might be a reason to do that. But no, it, I think it really ultimately comes down to architectural preference uh, for whoever the, uh, the, the customer happens to be. So as far as ASA goes, I mean, what's the value prop? Like, where does it fit in best? And what sort of use cases do you expect to see from it? So I think that the, the, the couple of areas that you're going to see, uh, so I've, so far I've talked about ASA and talked about it primarily as a tier one play. So this is in the mission critical space uh, where you have uh, basically mission critical apps of some sort uh, that you're running. And the types of apps that that is going to be are going to fall into a few broad categories, uh, the most common of which is probably going to be things like databases, Oracle, or or uh, NoSQL uh, databases are going to be fairly common in that space. There are also going to be some custom applications uh, uh, in that space as well. And there'll be a few others, but that, that's going to be the majority of it. Um, so that's absolutely a place where ASA plays and is meant to play. Um, the other place that it potentially can play, though, interestingly enough, is this is by removing uh, NAS protocols and features, uh, things like flex groups, for instance, which really are not relevant to uh, SAN workloads. By removing that, we've also, in effect, simplified uh, provisioning, implementation, configuration, and management of your array, because at this point, if you're administering a ASA, your only focus, you're not going to be asked about anything that is not SAN-oriented. So that's going to reduce the number of options, the number of buttons and knobs that you're able to turn. If you include that along with another big thing that is coming with ONTAP 9.7, and that is the system manager rewrite. That is the element manager that is on board with every version of ONTAP from 8.3 forward. Um, you will see a great deal of simplification uh, with ASA. Uh, a lot of that is, is because of the system manager uh, rewrite, but some of it is, is because you're removing options. If there's no longer any requirement that you understand what you would need to do to set up uh, NFS or SIFs or flex groups or things of that nature because they don't exist on an ASA. So I want to not so like the, that statement. I want to not like that statement because you're you're telling me that we don't need flex groups. But I get it. You know, it's it's something that's you know dedicated for SAN. It's simplistic. It's supposed to be there for just a tier one offering. Exactly. It, 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 I mean, it, I can talk all. Well, I can certainly talk to where you need uh, flex groups. But one place I can tell you with a fair degree of certainty that flex group will not be useful is this is if you are all SAN. No, it'd be completely irrelevant because I don't even. Know, can you even provision a flex group in that point? At that point, I mean, wouldn't that be shut down? Uh, 
I would think that you, it, it, it's, it's not going to be a relevant thing uh, without having a protocol that it is going to support. Um, I don't know whether you can provision or not, but I can tell you that it won't do anything. Um, and so there's really no point in exposing that button. And so with ASA, what you'll see is, this, is that those buttons simply don't exist. And so that means that you, you know, when you're looking at things to click on uh, in System Manager on an ASA, you do not have a uh, NFS or a SIPS or a flex group. And there's a number of other things of that nature as well. And so that reduces the number of things you could do. A number of options, number of things that you have to do in order to provision that array. Does the uh, automatic provisioning feature still work? I mean, does it automatically place the lens where it needs where they need to go? Uh, yes, ASA uses uh, what you're referring to is this balance placement, um, and ASA absolutely uses balance placement. What balance placement does is is it takes a look at the service level objective, as well as the amount of storage that are requested, and then finds where. Uh, it could situate a given workload based on those two characteristics and will then optimize that placement based on where is that available and which one is the least used that I could use of the places that are available. As far as other missing things in ASA, I mean, what what's the limit? I know we can't do NAS. I know we can't do certain aspects of that, but is there anything else that's missing today? Like, you know, can we do replication, snap mirror, that sort of thing? I mean, what sort of limitations do we have? Um, all of that is supported. A uh, couple of things that are uh, that are probably going to come in in uh, next releases, you know, additional enhancements are going to probably be the ability to uh, connect more than one HA pair together uh, into an ASA cluster. I would say that's highly likely. Uh, uh, NVMe uh, protocol support is also highly likely in that place. Uh, I suspect that some of the limits in terms of number of volumes and lens is likely to go up. Uh, the only other thing I can think of that is not supported in ASA that would be fairly common would be uh, Metro Cluster, so the MCC. That also is going to be coming. Uh, things like uh, your, basically your replication and disaster recovery, your snap mirror, snap vault, whether it's sync or async, uh, both work exactly the same way they work with Unified. In fact, most things uh, in Unified work exactly the same way, except for those that you know I've explicitly said are not don't exist, like NAS protocols, for instance. There's obviously no concept currently of doing a vol move outside of an HA pair in an ASA because it, it's limited to an HA pair. Uh, so things like that would not exist, but are likely to as you increase the, the, the scope of an ASA cluster beyond an HA pair. So what sort of requirements do you have for the ASA? I mean, I know you mentioned some platform support. Um, any other specific requirements, best practices, or is that all built into the platform? So for the most part, it's built in the platform. And keep in mind, ASA is still on tap 9.7. And so in terms of you know the, the DNA, it is 99.97% you know, exactly the same uh, in, in terms of what it is able to do, how it works, how you administer it, that sort of thing. Um, other requirements other than the fact that you are going to have certain array types, so the 200, and, or I'm sorry, the 220 or the 700, 
Aside from that, obviously, you're going to have to have ONTAP 9.7 or later, since that's uh, where ASA was released. Um, not really a ton of other stuff beyond that. You're going to need to have some sort of fiber channel or iSCSI, which means that you're likely to, you know, you're going to need uh, clients that support one or the other of those. Uh, in the case of fiber channel, you'll need switches because we do not support direct connect uh, from a fiber channel host to a fiber channel target. Uh, and just in case anyone's wondering why we don't support it, it's because we require NPIV uh, services, which come from the switch. That's what allows us to build uh, lifts on top of physical ports. Without NPIV services, uh, we would have physical port and would not be able to essentially create sub-interfaces below that. Yeah, I mean, in general, attaching a SAN host to a cluster directly is not a great idea anyway, because you're dealing with the fact that you can't have actual failover you can't have actual failover you are going to have major scaling problems unless that host happens to be gigantic um it also just doesn't seem like a good economic choice you know if you have a half million dollar array uh that you want to connect to a single host unless that host happens to be also something that is monolithic uh this seems like you're probably wasting well, you're wasting the ability to scale that you would otherwise get with this. So as far as a failover goes, I mean, at a technical level, how does a failover work? Like what, what happens when a node goes down? Like what's going to take place there? So let's, uh, we're, we have an HA pair, node A, node B. Let's assume that node B is taking over node A. Uh, I'm going to use, once again, uh, you know, a fairly common example. You're upgrading uh, on tap. In which case you would, you know, basically copy down uh, the ONTAP binaries to both of the controllers. Once that copy is completed and some checks are done to make sure that everything was set up properly, you then would need to actually reboot the arrays in order for ONTAP to be upgraded to that version. Now, obviously, one way you could do that is, is you could literally... Uh, essentially reboot both controllers at the same time. Obviously, that would be highly disruptive. Another approach and the one that we favor and also the one that we would use if you did, uh, if you used uh, automatic uh, non-disruptive upgrades is, is, is that once the copy and checks were completed, we then would do a planned takeover of node A, uh, once that was completed, we would do a give back of Node A. Node A at that point has been rebooted and is now uh, running the current version of ONTAP. We would then do the other, you know, do a takeover and ultimately a give back of Node B. And when we finish that, the cluster, the HA pair is now upgraded. So what's happening when you actually do a takeover? If it is a planned takeover, then we're going to be able to do a lot more processing in terms of uh, making sure that all writes, uh, you know, anything that is in NVRAM is flushed to disk. So we're going to have a final CP so that there's no dirty buffers. In other words, there's nothing stuck in NVRAM uh, when I reboot that basically has to be replayed as part of the, you know, essentially boot up into ONTAP. Uh, beyond that, each controller owns a certain uh, number of disks, or actually there are partitions on disk for the most part at this point. 
um, those would have to transition from whoever it is that normally owns it in steady state to the node that is doing the taking over. Uh, that transition, uh, depending on whether it is a planned or unplanned, uh, typically is going to happen uh, in typically a, a couple of seconds at the, at the outside. And so it is pretty fast. Now, what I'm saying at that point is this is that one controller has taken over another and from and from an ONTAP perspective, that takeover has completed. Um, that that essentially is what's happening in the background. If you're an ASA on in the foreground, you still are presenting active paths and you're presenting those active paths to the controller that's doing the takeover. And so you could send data down that, you know, IO down those paths. What we're going to do is this is we're going to buffer or essentially hold that, you know, those frames until that transition is completed, at which point we're going to flush to disk and then, you know, resume normal I.O. as we would before. Does that make sense as, a, as an answer? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the one other thing I can say is, is that in the event of an unplanned uh, takeover, uh, this would be a, a good example of this might be that you were doing some sort of maintenance in the rack or, you know, maybe somebody was and they knocked not one, not two, not three, but all four power cables, for instance, or I don't know, uh, you know, anything that might cause power to go by itself. Uh, that would be an example of a uh, unplanned takeover. So that. The big difference that you have with that is, is, is that you're likely to have data that is in NVRAM that has not been CP'd to disk yet. And so on reboot, one of the things you're going to need to do is, 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 is essentially replay that, that NVRAM or the journal, if you will, and, and flush that to disk before you start normal IO, normal operations. And so that's going to typically take a little bit longer than planned would. So if you know, I have and, a if I have a power outage, uh, how long does that data reside in NVRAM? Like how how long can I expect it to be in there to allow me to get the power outage fixed? Um, okay, that's a that's a good question. So what what's going to happen there? And it, it the specific details change a little bit based on the hardware that you're using, but essentially uh, we're going to whenever we receive uh, data. We, we make two copies of that data. One is going to go to memory. The other one is going to go to NVRAM or some or NVMEM. Essentially, it is going to be uh, persistent memory, and it is going to stay there until uh, those you know those IOs have actually been flushed to disk. Uh, and the reason we do that is is because you could have a power outage, for instance, but as soon as we we receive that data and put it in NVRAM, we act. We acknowledge back that, yes, we've received this and we've written this. And so we now need to make good on that promise. And the way we do that is this is, is that if power goes, when we boot back up again, we see that, hey, there appears to be data in in buffers uh, in NVRAM. And so you basically, if you were looking at EMS messages, you would see something to the effect of replaying dirty buffers. That is basically writing what was an NVRAM and what's not CP to disk prior to uh, whatever event it is that, that caused the shutdown is now being written out to disk. And that's going to happen before you resume normal operations where you you know are normally receiving IO and responding to it. 
Well, I mean, you, you mentioned it stays in NVRAM, but and, and that's true, but there is a limit, right? So, I mean, there's batteries. <laughs> those batteries can eventually discharge. So roughly how long are we talking about before those batteries go? Well, so that depends on the exact uh, hardware. Typically, uh, we're looking at 48 to 72 hours. Uh, that would be older NVRAM where you have a battery backup. Uh, newer versions, uh, we actually are saving it to essentially uh, uh, a uh, effectively a thumb drive. And so what we're saving it to is persistent and so it does not require a battery backup per se. Oh, that's cool. So we have like flash storage we can load it into so we don't have that battery discharge. Exactly. Huh. And, so, and, and so that does vary over, uh, you know, it, how old was the hardware, at, you know, it, basically what was the current design at the time that that hardware uh, was created. If you go back to some of the early, like the FAS uh, 870 or something like that, talking about 15 years old, it's definitely going to be NVRAM. There is going to be a battery. And when you boot up, you'll actually, if you were paying close attention, you would see that at some point, uh, we're basically going to initialize NVRAM and we're going to look at the strength of that charge and tell you that either it is sufficient for the 48 or 72 hours or it isn't. And if it isn't on uh, platforms like that, we would then halt and wait for the NVRAM battery to charge sufficiently that it was capable of actually delivering that. And so if you had an NVRAM card that was sitting on a shelf or in a system that was powered off and unplugged for long enough, you could have that battery drained and that's going to show up in a very long uh, boot up process because that battery has to charge sufficiently for us to continue the boot process. That is quite old. And so if you're seeing something like that, you probably are a good candidate for a refresh. So one thing I see come across the DLs pretty often is proper failover testing, right? So how do I test failovers to make sure that I know that failovers are going to work when I need them to work? So what's your suggestion for testing failovers? So I would say the big thing you want to do is is, is you want to make sure that you're testing both types of failovers. So a planned failover is is one where you're essentially either you're initiating it directly or you're initiating it uh, through a process like, for instance, an automatic MDU or an automatic uh, non-disruptive upgrade. Uh, so you test that way. Uh, literally, you could just do a storage failover of one controller to the other uh, while you're running you know, I.O. to both nodes and, and look at the impact of that. Uh, then you're also going to want to do some unplanned uh, in order to look at the impact of those uh, versus the, the planned. Uh, incidentally, uh, every version of ONTAP, uh, there is a considerable amount of QA that is done. And one of the things that's done is, is, is that we inject all forms, all sorts of different types of planned and unplanned failovers to look for any differences in behavior. Does it all behave the way you would expect it to and come back in the amount of times that you're expecting? Uh, are you seeing any issues with IO that is being run? Those sorts of things. That, those are, that probably makes up something like 60% of the QA testing that, that we're doing on every release that comes out and across platforms, interoperability, and so on. If I wanted to find more information, I understand you have a new TR out there, but where else could I get information? So you can go to the SAN uh, landing page itself. Uh, we have, uh, we'll have links to uh, playbooks, uh, also to uh, 
things like NVMe uh, primer. Uh, we have TRs for uh, ASA. That's going to be TR4515 uh, for NVMe, TR4684. Uh, SAN best practices, TR4080, all of which uh, either are just updated or currently being updated by me. So uh, be hot off the press uh, by the time you go look. And if you have a problem with any of those TRs, you know where to find Mike Peppers, FLI guy on Twitter. That is me. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via TechOnTapPodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Mike Peppers for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.